Today in TFC Stock Kickout, we're going to explore a company that's created a machine, some would say came out of the Marvel Universe. Huh? They have created a setup that is used by TSMC, Samsung and Intel. In essence, all the biggest foundries in the world that produces the smallest component of a microchip today use their machines. They're not foreign to this space, but their investment in this current technology has paid off, essentially creating the car of the lithography space. Not just a faster horse, yeah? But they are in a very specialized field and I think you need to know that the management is a little bit old already. So that is something to be a cause of concern. But all that being said, they're doing very well in the space and you will be hearing a lot of explanations about the technology in this field of lithography. Hopefully this gives you a better envision of the process of manufacturing microchips. So joining me today to geek out on this manufacturing marvel is Sertin from The Good Investor. He has recently started a fund called The Compounder Fund and it's a pretty big proponent of finding good companies at a good price. He's probably not that foreign for all of you, yeah? If you have not checked out, check him out on uh, socials, on websites and we did a podcast with him on the main feed also. But the company today is probably pretty foreign to most of us. ASML is the company behind the leading lithography technology and they have created a whole new way of producing microchips that are so small like 2 to 3 micrometers small okay very very small and I'll leave something to share with you more but ASML is still a semiconductor business okay they are in this space and there is always a cause of concern about the cyclicality of the business but something say maybe things are changing and we wonder is it a good price at this moment in time right so we're going to talk about all that and more so join us to learn more today for reference sake, this episode was recorded on the 24th of June 2021 and released early to our community members. Our discussion today is solely for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not serve as any form of advice or recommendations. Thank you for loving what we do and empowering us financially to do more for you. Let's geek out. Okay, guys, so we're back today uh, for TFC Stock Geek Out and we have Sertzing in the house. Yo, welcome. Hello, nice. everybody. Nice. Reggie, thanks for yeah. having me. Oh, dude, you're, you're always welcome. You're always coming on, so that's great. Like, Let's try to keep this going. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's yep, going to yep. be fun, Happy right? To. Great, great. And today we're going to talk about a company that is um, no longer as hot. It's not as hot topic these days. You know, there was a period of time this was like a hot topic. I'm sure you know what I mean, right? Like, I think a few years ago, people were talking about this company and it sits in the complex supply chain of um, essentially all your chip makers. Huh? Something that we cannot talk in isolation, right? So what is, what is this company that we're going to uh, discuss today? Yeah, so this company is a company that's based in the Netherlands, but listed in Europe and the US. It's called ASML uh, Holding, NV. So yeah, as I said, it's a company based in the Netherlands and it's a company that uh, is famous for making lithography machines. And lithography is a very important process in the manufacture of uh, silicon chips, right? So in the electronic space, uh, every electronic device will require a silicon chip, which is an integrated uh, circuit, right? Or rather a silicon wafer that contains plenty of uh, integrated circuits. And that is known as the silicon chip. And ASML's machines, they form a very important part of the process in the manufacture of this uh, small uh, silicon chip that basically powers uh, the entire world today. Okay, so the very, very small silicon chip you're talking about is like the the one as fine as the hair, that level, right? That kind of, the, the where, where TSMC is at. Is, is that kind of what I'm hearing? Uh, yes, yeah. so uh, basically if you open up any electronic device, you'll be able to find this small, uh, a small rectangular 
piece of silicon, that is the chip. And within the chip will be millions and millions of transistors, depending upon, of course, the complexity of the electronic device that we're talking about. So when you're talking about like the breadth of a hair and so on, right? So these would actually be the transistors that are on the chip. And to be able to create these transistors, uh, you will require the lithography machine to actually uh, create a certain type of light source that will then print these uh, transistors onto the silicon chip. Yeah. And actually, when you're talking about the breadth of a hair, right, you are actually referring to lithography techniques or technology or chips that are uh, like many years old. So for some context, uh, human hair is about 100,000 nanometers thick. Right, and today we are talking about transistors that have size ranges of like say two to seven nanometers. So that mm. is like the state of the art. So you can imagine when compared to the size of a human hair, how small these uh, latest transistors are. Yeah, and the smaller they are, the more data can be transmitted. They can handle more complex computing processes. Is that what I understand to be accurate? Yes, correct. So basically, for any given area within a silicon chip, the more transistors there are, the more powerful it is. Yeah, so if you have two silicon chips of the same sizes, but one has twice as many transistors, then the silicon chip with uh, the larger number of transistors will be twice as powerful as the other one. Okay, that's cool. So in, in other words, this is a technology that is definitely required to continue to power up the all the high-end computing devices. Not your very low-level, like fridge, aircon, those kind of things, right? We're going for the crazy machine learning, high-end gaming, that kind of stuff. Those kind of computer chips, um, GPU and all those things require this technology to be within their supply chain to produce. Yes, correct. So um, basically, as the world becomes more and more digital, there'll be a lot more data that's created. And when there's a lot more data that's created, you, there's more chips that are required to store the data, to process the data, to transmit the data and so on. And so this is where, uh, you know, companies will require uh, more and more sophisticated uh, chips. And by sophisticated, uh, what it means is that, you know, they require chips with more and more transistors for a given area. Yeah. Mm. So then, you know, TSMC is the foundry of the world at this moment in time, right? So they, they produce most of these things. Are they using ASML's technology in terms of production? Yeah, so uh, TSMC holds more than a 50% market share in the foundry space. So by foundry, uh, to define it, uh, it's really a contract manufacturing of chips. So you have uh, in the world, there are a few uh, types of uh, chip makers, right? One would be the foundries, which they, they do not design chips. What they do is they take the chip designs from their customers and they produce the chips, right? And then there are uh, chip designers. So these are the guys who design the chips, and then they take their designs, they go to TSMC or, or TSMC's competitors and say, hey, can you produce these chips for me? And then there are the integrated chip makers like Intel, right? Intel used to be more focused on chip designing and manufacturing for itself, but recently it wants to become a foundry as well, meaning it wants to become a contract manufacturer. So um, yes, TSMC is one of ASML's uh, largest customers, most important customers. Mm, because they are essentially selling the machine, right? So these, these guys are just selling the machine, the setup, the technology to produce this thing. So then, um, in that sense, how is their business kind of arrangement like, right? In terms of um, how, how is their relationship with all these kind of customers? Because they are in a, they're in a very different space in a sense of like, I think a lot of people, retail investors, right? When they look at things, they think a lot of things are very simple in terms of, um, a buyer, a seller, you know, but I think in the, in the B2B business space, there are a lot of complicated kind of business arrangements. So where, where is ASML sitting or what is their business model in that sense? 
Sure. So in terms of where ASML is sitting in the entire semiconductor industry, right? So uh, on one end, you have the suppliers of all the raw materials of, of, of the chips, right? So like you're talking about the silicon, the, the, the raw silicon wafers and so on. And then next step will be ASML, which is one of the providers of uh, machines that help to create silicon chips, right? And then you take the raw materials from the suppliers, you take ASML machines, and then you move that on to the, uh, the chip makers. So these would be like the guys that we're talking about, right? TSMC, Intel, and so on. They buy the machines from ASML, they buy the raw materials, and then they produce the chips, right? And then these chips then go on to the manufacturers of electronic devices that then uh, gets passed on to the end consumer. So that is where ASML sits in terms of the entire semiconductor industry. And uh, in terms of the business relationships, so ASML um, has managed to cultivate very close relationships with some of its key customers. And it has three key customers, really. Um, there's TSMC, Taiwan, then there's uh, Samsung in uh, Korea, and then there's Intel in the US. Uh, but I believe uh, Samsung and TSMC will be the bigger customers that mm. AS ASML currently has. And what I mean by close relationships, so ASML is actually famous in the semiconductor space, mostly because it is the sole producer of the latest generation of lithography machines. Essentially a machine that creates a light source that then goes on to print the transistors onto the silicon wafers to create the integrated circuits, uh, uh, aka chips, right? And so the, for, for many years, the state-of-the-art uh, lithography machine utilized uh, what is known as a deep ultraviolet light, which uses light of a wavelength of about 193 nanometers. So that was the state-of-the-art for, for a couple of years ago. Right. And in 2000, ASML started uh, developing its uh, extreme ultraviolet uh, lithography technology platform. So extreme ultraviolet would, would use uh, light of a much lower wavelength. And this wavelength part is important because the lower the wavelength of the light that's used, the smaller the transistors that can be printed. So by way of analogy, which is something ASML uh, once shared, is that you know, if you were to keep writing something with a marker pen, and you want to write smaller and smaller characters, <laughs> sooner, sooner or later you want to change to a ballpoint pen, mm, right? Mm. So that is that. It's the same analogy. If you use a very thick light source, or rather a light source with very long wavelength, then the structures that you can print would be very, uh, would be larger, mm. right? So extreme ultraviolet EUV is the latest generation of technology that ASML developed. And so it started developing in 2000, and it was only in the late, um, say around 2016 to 2018, where ASML was ready to introduce a commercially viable EUV lithography machine. So you can imagine like it was like 15, 16, 17 years of uh, research and development, right? To get, to get them to where the machine could be commercially viable. The research process was so, uh, was so difficult in, I think it was in 2012 or, or the early 2010s, when ASML uh, got its three key customers. So that would be TSMC, Intel, and Which essentially uh, covers the whole market. <laughs> more, more or less. More or less. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, and and these three got these three customers to co-invest into the development of the uh, UV lithography program. Mm. So as part of the co-investment process, uh, uh, Intel, Samsung, and TSMC became shareholders of ASML for a period of time. And at the same time, also pumped in billions of dollars into the research program. So, uh, you know, the fact that uh, these key customers wanted to invest in ASML's programs, I think it's just a sign of how closely integrated they are. And in terms of like the types of uh, business model that ASML currently has, uh, it's actually pretty simple. The, the company sells machines, 
sells these machines, you can go from say a few million dollars per machine to like hundreds of millions of dollars. I think in 2020, the average selling price of the EUV lithography machine was, uh, if I remember correctly, about 170 million US dollars on average. So this it sells these machines to its customers. Uh, they use those machines and and then uh, ASML would also have a small part of its revenue coming from uh, maintenance of these machines. Mm. So I think about 20 or 30% of ASML's revenue comes from the maintenance of these uh, machines. So it goes down there, uh, you know, maintains the software, the hardware, and so on. Yeah. So that is the basic business model of ASML. It sells um, machines and uh, maintains those. Okay, that's cool. I, I think for what you were saying before, it, it's kind of like trying to build a case for why these company is resilient from an economic standpoint, right? Because I think it's always it's always very wobbly when a company only has three customers, uh, for like a better way to put it, right? I think a lot for a lot of investors, it's quite a red flag, you know, when, hey, this company only has a few customers. Um, but in that sense, these guys actually took a playbook out of the pharmaceutical company structure. They all invest in the early stage and then they share this technology and then they kind of use it. Right? So that's kind, of, that's kind of how I'm seeing it. Is that a base case for you that this is why ASML's technology will be here to stay for an extended period of time? Because why am I asking this? Because in the chip space, it's always an arms race. A little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. So with three customers and you know, being in a very specific space, you know, uh, I think that's my concern. Like, are they like just waiting to be competed? Yeah, of course. Um, so having high customer concentration is definitely a risk. But the interesting thing is that ASML currently in the entire lithography space, and so lithography is a very important part of the semiconductor manufacturing process. Right? Without lithography, uh, you essentially be unable to produce uh, integrated circuits. Mm. Right? And so you do need lithography. And in the lithography space, if you talk about the entire lithography, so that includes extreme ultraviolet, deep ultraviolet, and the older types of technologies, uh, depending on the source uh, of information you're getting it from, uh, ASML holds anywhere from 60 to 80% market share. Mm-hmm. Right? So it has a near monopoly over the entire space. But more importantly, it is the only company in the world that can produce the extreme ultraviolet lithography machines. Um, along the way, some of its competitors like Canon and Nikon from Japan, you know, they basically gave up because the technology is too difficult. I think at this point, it might be interesting to kind of talk a little bit about what the whole EUV lithography machine looks like, right? And then I, I think that can give perspective of why it's so difficult to produce. So earlier I talked about uh, the fact that, you know, it took them 15, 16 or 17 years to fully develop the machine for, for commercial use. So there's that time scale involved. And then when you look at one EUV lithography machine, right, it is, it is an engineering marvel. That's how I would put it. It's incredible. So if you look at it, the machine actually requires like three planes to ship. So that's one, you know, that's the number of Really? Wow. Three planes. Um, to ship one machine. To ship. Okay, crazy. Yep, correct. And, um, and we're talking about three cargo planes, right? <laughs> so, so can you imagine yeah, not, not passenger planes. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Each, each machine is about... 180,000 kilograms. Mm. They contain 100,000 parts, right? And they require a floor space of around 80 square meters. So 80 square meters, so a, a typical HDB flat in Singapore, like a four-room HDB flat is about 100 square meters mm. also, mm. right? So you, you can imagine like you're talking about like maybe a three-room or two-room HDB flat, so a small apartment. Uh, and, and so that's how big the machine is. And so how the machine works, right? There is a vacuum chamber in the machine because uh, extreme ultraviolet light gets absorbed by everything, including air. So you want to minimize the amount of light uh, that is being absorbed. 
by the ambient surroundings, right? So there's a vacuum chamber. And within this vacuum chamber, uh, there will be uh, droplets of tin, TIN, so the metal tin, that gets injected into this vacuum chamber. But the injection is done at 50,000 droplets per second, right? And each droplet is about 25 microns in, in diameter. So uh, again, for perspective, a human hair is about 70 microns thick, right? So I, I need to clarify something. Earlier, I said that the human hair is about 100,000 nanometers. Uh, that was wrong. Sheet of a piece of paper is about hundred thousand nanometers thick, mm. not the human hair. Yeah, but I believe that their thickness should be about the same. Yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, uh, uh, human hair is about seventy microns thick, and each droplet is twenty five microns in diameter, and so fifty thousand droplets per second fired into the chamber, and each droplet needs to be hit by two lasers with precision. The first laser will actually uh, change the shape of the of each droplet from from a sphere into a, into a pancake. The second droplet would vaporize the pancake, right? And it is that to, to create plasma. And it is that plasma that is created that uh, produces the extreme ultraviolet light. Now, when this light is created, it needs to be guided to the silicon wafer. And this guidance has to be extremely uh, precise, just to give you a sense of like the, the precision that is required, right? So the mirrors that are used in an extreme ultraviolet lithography machine there are, there are many mirrors that are used in the machine, but each mirror, if you were to expand it to the size of, say, Germany, right, that it would be so flat that there will be no bumps that are more than 0 0.1 centimeters high. So can you imagine the size of, like, Germany, a kind of a, a decent-sized country, mm. and it's so flat that there's no bump that is more than 0 0.1 centimeters high. So that's the level of extreme precision engineering that has to go into the uh, extreme ultraviolet lithography machine. I, I think this gives people a sense of uh, like how difficult it can be to produce one. So ASML is the only company in the world that can make this extreme ultraviolet lithography machine. And if you are a chip maker and you want to create uh, chips with uh, very small transistors, so you're talking about like 2 nanometers or 2 to 7 nanometers or perhaps even smaller, then you would need extreme ultraviolet lithography. So Deep ultraviolet lithography is actually able to produce chips with that kind of uh, uh, dimensions as well, but it's going to be a super, super complicated and costly process that from an economic standpoint is not feasible. And therefore, there is that uh, reason for existence for extreme ultraviolet lithography. So, you know, if you're a new chip maker and you want to compete against TSMC or, or Samsung or Intel, right, you can only buy the product from one company. So from this perspective, right, ASML is more like a picks and shovels play. Mm. So even though it has high customer concentration, and it's true that if any of its customers run into trouble, it's going to get hit. Uh, but I think the impacts could be temporary because if any of its customers um, are affected, the consumers of chips would then go to other chip makers to say, hey, I, I need these chips and I, I need to get it produced. Now, let's say, for example, uh, Intel has problems. and say, Intel can't do it for me now. TSMC or Samsung, you guys got to do it for me. And guess where, who or where they're going to get the machines from, mm. which is ASML. Yeah, so I think from that perspective, even though there's very high customer concentration, and that's a risk that I, that I note, um, I do not think it is something that uh, would cause me to uh, be too worried. Okay, fair, fair. But you're also at the same time not worried that there'll be someone else that comes along with a better shovel or a different shovel based on what I'm hearing because I think it's quite nuts. Lah. They have a vacuum and then they pump particles in and then there's a laser and then you got to direct the thing. Right, really quite sounds sounds a bit marvelish. Huh? Not, not in the sense of like engineering marvel but really in the marvel marvel kind of, kind of thing. Yeah, so 
I've read somewhere before that uh, people have said that ASML's lithography machines, uh, uh, they are actually more complicated than rocket science. So I think that gives you this kind of a sense of how difficult it is to do. When it comes to investing, um, I always operate uh, with probabilities, right? It's ne they're never absolutes. Um, so it's always possible that there can be somebody that comes out with a better mousetrap. Mm. But is it probable? I don't think so, right? So the chances of that happening, I think, will be really low. Like I said, you know, there are other uh, manufacturers of lithography systems, but they basically gave up on, on the UV space. You know, they put their hands up and say, no, I can't do it. Yeah. Okay, it's very, very cool. Interesting company. And then from a business standpoint, like you've said, they only have a few major customers and you know, they essentially sell the whole machines, right? With a little bit of component in the servicing um, side of uh, revenue structure, right? So, so how are their financials looking like? You know, what, is their, what is their growth numbers like? And you know, how, how do you see this going forward for them? Yeah, so I think uh, we can tackle the topic of growth first. Some interesting statistics, right? They can give you the perspective of how much data that can be generated. I think a lot of people do not realize the scale of the explosion in terms of the, the, the quantum of data that will be generated in the next few years. Uh, currently, there are about 40 billion connected devices in use. So-called smart devices, right? Would be expected to increase to 350 billion by 2030, right? And these connected devices would be expected to create up to 175 zettabytes of data per what year. What the hell is a zettabyte? <laughs> ah, so this is where I'm going to come yeah, to. Yeah. Right, okay. So, so about 175 zettabytes of data per year by 2025. Now, one zettabyte equals one trillion gigabytes. And you know, so if you were to take people's state-of-the-art current internet connection speeds today, and you were to download 175 zettabytes of data, um, can you guess how long that would take? Just a, just a guess. I don't know, 100 years? <laughs> Wait, like a, like a million years or something? 1.8 billion years. What the hell? So it will take one person, 1.8 billion years, uh, to download the amount of data that will be generated annually by connected devices by 2025. Of course, these are projections and the numbers may not be accurate, but I think uh, it's good for a ballpark or a directional read, right? So that's the amount of data that's going to be generated um, in the next few years. And um, so what this means is that there will be more and more uh, chips that are required, and more and more sophisticated chips that are required. And so that is, like, I think, the, a very strong uh, driver of growth for, for ASML's machines. So that's one. And the, um, the other thing will be an interesting development that happened uh, in, only in recent months or maybe about the past year or so, and that will be the concept of technology sovereignty. And so, you know, we earlier we talked about how TSMC controls about 50% or more of the global foundry market, right? And I'm not sure if people are aware, but, you know, if you look at where TSMC is based, which is Taiwan, it is not the most uh, geopolitically stable region, simply because there is a long history of um, contestation between Taiwan and China about the island's sovereignty. And, um, I love how you use the word and, contestation, and no by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Very and, politically and, neutral. <laughs> continue, continue. And there is no, and there's, and it's not a secret mm. that you no, know, the US and China are not on exactly friendly terms at the moment, mm. right? And so you know you have like this very important company that makes more than half of the world's chips, and these are all the high end chips we're talking about, right? That power the growth of the digital economy globally, 
that is in this uh, geopolitically unstable region called Taiwan. And so more and more countries are starting to realize that, hey, actually we need to you know, uh, have uh, more certainty over the supply of high-end chips. And so more and more countries are starting to want to bring the development of the manufacture of high-end chips in-house into their own countries. Right, so there's this concept of technology sovereignty and Intel, which I you know I said earlier that Intel wants to enter the foundry space. So that I think is a sign of you know the US really ramping up its intention yes. of wanting technology sovereignty. Yes. Right. And so there's an I think a strong underlying um, um, tailwind for ASML from this technology sovereignty space. Because if this country if various countries around the world want their own technology sovereignty, they'll need to go to the currently the only producer of like the machine that will enable you to produce high-end chips. Mm. Right? So that would be ASML. So I think there is that other element of like important growth uh, for, for, for ASML. Yeah, I think for a lot of people that don't know about this recently, there's, a, there's been an update that the, the US government has, I think, was it Moderna or was it Pfizer? They're going to be opening up a vaccine factory, a vaccine supply line in Korea. And the Korean government has already signed to bring LG, Samsung and all the major producers to open up their supply chain of, you know, com computer chips and, and all that, all the foundry stuff into the US, right? So they have a strategic partnership at this point. It's a country level kind of thing, yes. Yeah, so um, ASML, I think, would be a kind of a clear beneficiary there. So, you know, you have these two strong uh, tailwinds for, for ASML, I think. And even if you take away the technology sovereignty, I think, like, you know, just looking at, like, the growth of uh, digitalization in the world, that itself is, I think, a, a lasting and, and powerful tailwind that can power the growth of uh, ASML. Now, if you talk about its financials, right, so what I tend to look out for in my investments, I like to look out for consistent growth. Uh, I like to look out for strong cash flow, right? And I like to look out for the lack of uh, shareholder dilution, right? Meaning that the share count doesn't increase over time. Because, you know, if a company can grow, but if the share count increases at a faster rate than the growth of the company, as a shareholder, you are effectively mm, losing I'm money. I'm sensing a lot of uh, software dilution here. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, oh, yes. we can talk about that, actually. That is an interesting mm. topic, yeah. If you want to later in the part of the podcast, uh, and and I also look like to look at strong balance sheet. So in, in this respect, ASML actually um, passes uh, all of these. So for some numbers, right? So from look at say from twenty ten to twenty twenty, ASML's revenue has compounded at about twelve percent per year, um, and the annual growth rate uh, in more recent years, so that would be like say twenty fifteen to twenty twenty, it has accelerated to uh, about seventeen percent annually. So decent rate of revenue growth. The growth of its uh, net income. Uh, it's actually pretty similar as well. It's about 13% from 2010 to 2020. And if you look at 2015 to 2020, the growth rate is slightly faster at about 21% per year. And then uh, if you look at free cash flow, uh, the company has been free cash flow positive uh, throughout the past decade. And its free cash flow uh, margin has also been um, consistently strong. So free cash flow margin would be basically free cash flow as a percentage of revenue. And that has averaged by about 20% from 2010 to 2020. And the balance sheet has uh, been strong, I think in nearly every year, or every year from 2010 to 2020, the company has had more cash than debt. So kept a very strong balance sheet. And the share count has actually also declined by about 0.5% annually from 2010 to 2020. So you know, if you look at a uh, decline in the share count and growth in revenue, and growth in cash flow and so on, the per share growth is actually faster than the numbers that I just uh, mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the first quarter of 2021, 
uh, the growth rate really accelerated. So revenue jumped by uh, about 78.8% and net income more than tripled. Uh, and the balance sheet, of course, remains strong. And so when I look at a company uh, like that, you know, I, I think that the financials are in a very healthy place. You, know, you have consistent growth uh, at, a, at a decent growth rate and we have very strong free cash flow margins, very strong balance sheet. The share count hasn't increased over time. Um, and I think there could be an inflection in terms of the growth rate as well. Uh, because you know, so initially you had that underlying trend of digitalization, you know, which powers the, the increase from more chips, but then you add on this technology sovereignty, and I think that there could be an inflection in the growth rate of ASML um, in the next, uh, I don't know, three to five years. Or so. so so that is a potential outsized opportunity over there. So so that, those are the gap measures, which are great, right? I mean, free cash flow, very doing doing well. It's not easy to grow margins of free cash flow for a business like that. You know, to consistently be able to create, and you know, they must have done something on their supply chain and all that stuff, right? So a lot of good stuff there. But uh, are there any sector-specific non-gap measures that you know we should be aware of when trying to understand this company, or should we just see it as you no? Know, these guys sell very very high-level machine. More machine they sell, then that's good enough. That's all we need to know. Yeah, actually, I think it's the latter, meaning that you know, uh, the gap numbers or the officially reported numbers are good enough. There's, there are no like special industry matrix that we can look at. Uh, of course, you, you do want to track the growth in the, uh, the, I think the services revenue because the higher the services revenue, uh, there is, uh, I think the more stable the business is. Uh, because right now, you know, um, ASML depends on selling the machines and you know, when you're selling expensive capital products, um, there may be some volatility yeah. from time to time, right? Um, so. Uh, if there are more services uh, being offered to customers, I think that makes the business a little bit more stable. And then, you know, the number of machines that are being mm. sold, yeah, like I think that can give uh, people or investors a kind of a good sense of the, the level of demand for, for the company's uh, machine. Yeah, that, that's good to know. Um, I like that it's a simple business model, but exactly like what you said, right? There tends to be a plateau in terms of selling very big machines. You know, at some point in time, a lot of companies, when they invest in a machine, they want to use 20 years, or at least 15 to 20 years. That's the ballpark that they want to be at. Only then it will substantiate their capital injection. right? So um, people can only buy that many machines at some point in time. And so services revenue matters. right? So I think what I'm driving at is how are they trying to grow services? That's one thing. So growth, further growth. And how are they spending their free cash flow? So they make all this money. How are they going to do it to continue to stay relevant? So um, in terms of growing the services revenue, it's really simple, right? The more machines they sell, the, the, the more uh, services revenue that they can bring in. Uh, in terms of services revenue as a percentage of total revenue, the percentage may not change much, but at least you know, uh, the, the base will become higher over time. So I think that's also a good thing. And in, in terms of where they are investing the dollars, uh, so ASML uh, only in, really introduced the commercial version of uh, the EUV lithography machine only a few years ago by 2016 or 17 or something like that. But uh, the company is not resting on its laurels. Uh, it's actually in the process of developing the next generation of extreme ultraviolet uh, lithography machines, which it calls high NA or high numerical uh, aperture. So the numerical aperture is basically a term that describes the angle of light or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head what, the, what that technical term means, but uh, the higher the numerical aperture, the smaller the transistors that can be printed. Right, so high, the high NA version of the, the machines would enable ASML's customers to create even smaller transistors. So um, 
think right now there are customers of ASML that are uh, in the process of conducting research to see like, you know, if this high NA program can enable them to reach uh, commercial production at a high level for like chips with very, very small um, transistors in the region of like two to three nanometers. Mm, mm, yeah, there are only a few people that can do that. I know IBM is trying to do the two nanometer thing, but at this moment in time, they're still very far down the road. Okay, so that, so that's, that's interesting. Um, in that sense, I also want to clarify that ASML has no intention of you know um, going broader in their business. At this moment in time, they're just very focused on this and they're just con- going to continue to focus on this. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, correct. So they're just very focused on improving its um, lithography uh, machines. So that's where the, its focus is okay, at. Okay, great. So what, what is their kind of development budget then? What is the percentage of money that goes into development like R&D? And you know, how, how much are they coming back to shareholders and all that stuff? So um, I have not been tracking the uh, research and development expenses as a percentage of revenue and so on. So that's something that I don't mm. really know. Uh, but um, if you're talking about like the amount of capital that are returning to shareholders, right? So I think like just looking at the free cash flow alone is a, is a good gauge because free cash flow is essentially the cash that ASML can in the future if it wants to, you know, return to shareholders fully. But for now, um, it's taking that free cash flow and investing in this business and um, building up the mm. balance sheet. Uh, I think one very interesting uh, investment that is making, um, so it's also related to the development of these uh, high numerical aperture mixed generation uh, extreme ultraviolet lithography system. And that would be its partnership with Carl Zeiss, which is a key supplier. Right, so ASML is investing uh, more than a billion euros right, into Carl Zeiss. And what Calzize does is to create all the optical equipment that goes into a UV lithography machine. So think about the mirrors, the lenses, mm-hmm. and so on, right? And you know, earlier I mentioned how precise these uh, optical um, equipment needs to be, right? And uh, so Calzize is the key, uh, is the one supplying it, and ASML is uh, co-investing uh, with Calzize into creating the the optical uh, equipment that is required for the uh, high numerical aperture generation of UV lithography system machines to be able to be manufactured. Nice. Okay, we're, we're seeing a little bit of sideway expansion biting back the supply chain at some level. So uh, it's, it's actually, if you think about it, right, it's the very same concept exactly. that ASML <laughs> used when it got Intel and Samsung mm. and TSMC to, to, to mm-hmm. co-invest. Yeah. So I thought that was a very interesting move. Um, yeah, and, and, and that's one of the things I really like about the uh, the management team at ASM. Okay, yeah, so that's a great sidetrack into management team. <laughs> so can mm-hmm. you kind of walk us through like who are these guys behind the company? So I think there are uh, two really important um, people uh, in ASML's management team at the moment. There's the CEO, Peter Wenning, and then there is uh, Martin Vandenbrink, who is the chief technology officer. Both of them have been in ASML for uh, many, many years. Um, I think uh, so. Wenning, the CEO, joined ASML in January 1999, right, and was promoted to CEO in 2013. And the chief technology officer would be Vandenbrink, and he joined ASML in 1984, and he became the chief technology officer in 2013. So I think both of these guys are really important. Why? Because, um, right, so when ASML first started developing its um, extreme ultraviolet technology um, platform, uh, Wenning was the CFO, right? And Vandenbrink was already leading the, the company's uh, products and technology team. So in kind of a, in effect, like a chief technology officer, just that he did not have the title at that point in time, right? And so 
uh, when ASML was developing extreme ultraviolet lithography, there were actually other competing technologies that promised uh, to be able to bring the semiconductor industry to the next level. So, you know, the, the reason for the existence of extreme ultraviolet lithography is to be able to create chips with very, very small transistors. But it was not the only technology. There were other competing technological platforms that were present at that point in time. But, but ASML only focused on extreme ultraviolet lithography. And, and when you look at the roles that uh, Wenning and Vandenbrink helped, uh, when ASML started developing its uh, UV technology platform, I think that they probably had a very big say into just focusing on extreme ultraviolet lithography. And, you know, this uh, focus on extreme ultraviolet lithography may very well be a stroke of luck. Like, they kind of just, they may have just lucked out in terms of picking the right um, technology platform to go with, right? But the I think the amount of perseverance that they showed you know, um, as I mentioned earlier, they took more than a, easily more than a dozen years to develop the technology, right? I think that shows a lot of perseverance. That's one. Um, and the, I think the very creative way they sought funding, right? So I mentioned earlier, they got their key customers to co-invest with them, right? And again, right, uh, Wenning was the CFO when ASML uh, signed the deals with TSMC, Intel, and Samsung. So he probably had a very big role to play as well in getting the, the whole co-investment program across the line. Right, so I think the, these two guys, um, they are very important members of ASML's um, management team and I like the fact that you know they have been in the company for decades and were promoted to their current roles. So I think that's really smart. And of course, you know, I mentioned earlier about the co-investment program they had with Carl Zeiss. So you know, besides co-investing the R&D, they also took up a significant minority stake in Carl Zeiss. I think it's like 25% or so in Carl Zeiss. And, and again, I think it's a really smart move because by co-investing with Carl Zeiss and investing in Carl Zeiss, they have significantly reduced a key supplier risk that they face. Right? They are able to, um, I guess, you know, have better um, insight into how Carl Zeiss is running things. And, and if there's any problems with Carl Zeiss business, they'll be able to find out uh, much faster as compared to, say, just being purely a customer. Right? And, and so I think that's, that's a really... Smart, um, smart move that uh, uh, both uh, that ASML's management team has done. Um, so, uh, when I look at management teams, I like to look at their capabilities and their ability to innovate. Right. So, you know, in terms of the innovation, I think the fact that um, they were able to come up with the EUV lithography machine, which something no other company in this space can do, I think it's already testament enough to like their ability to innovate and ability to execute. And then the earlier things I talked about, like, you know, the history of Wenning and Vandenbrink and um, the history of, uh, you know, um, the, the roles that they probably had played in um, directing ASML towards the UV lithography programs and so on. So I, I think that's very another very strong sign of their ability. And then if you look at, like, the growth in ASML's um, results itself, right? So, like, for example, in 2011, ASML sold three UV systems. Right, um, and UV system sales as a percentage of ASML's total revenue was like two percent. So that's twenty eleven. In twenty twenty, um, ASML sold thirty one UV systems, and uh, UV systems was like thirty two percent of ASML's revenue. And I believe that that percentage will likely increase over time, um, along with growth in ASML's overall revenue as well. Yeah, so uh, you know, I think that they have been uh, able to successfully commercialize the EUV lithography systems machine. So I think that's fantastic. Um, and then, you know, um, earlier I talked about the fact that 
the management team is already developing the next generation of UV lithography systems. So um, I think that's another sign of like, you know, the, fact, the, the, the type of ambition that they have. You know, they're, just, they're not just content to say, oh, I've created this wonderful technological marvel and you know, let's just sit on this for the next 20 years and, and you know, our job is done. But you no, know, you know, they, are, they are working to develop uh, even better versions of this technological marvel that they have created. Yeah, and uh, for me, um, the integrity of the management team is also super important. And one of the key things I look out for in terms of the integrity would actually be how the um, management team is um, compensated, right? So I like to look at the compensation structure. So we can talk about Wenning. So um, in 2020, Wenning's base salary was about 1.1 million euros, and which is actually peanuts when you compare it to ASML's um, um, business numbers. I mean, in 2020, ASML produced 3.6 billion euros in free cash flow and also nearly 3.6 billion in euros in net income. So Wenning's salary, base salary is really just a um, uh, kind of a rounding salary, <laughs> right? Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> rounding error, yes. Yeah. It's true, it's, it's, it's true, it's, it's, but yeah, I never really thought a, of it that way. Yeah. Rounding true, error. Yeah. Okay, continue. <laughs> Yeah, and and uh, and in in the same year in twenty twenty, uh, Wenning also um had short term cash incentive, and a long term equity based incentive. So the short term incentive is also very interesting. Typically, I like management teams that uh have, um that focus on long term incentives, right, rather than short term ones. But in the case of ASML, the short term incentives are very interesting. They are determined by a number of um things uh that ASML needs to perform in, right. So the first would be the company's uh earnings before interest and tax margin, uh, the company's uh, gross margin for the sale of its EUV lithography systems, the company's free cash flow, and more importantly, the company's um, progress along its technology roadmap, as well as uh, the company's uh, quality of products made and customer satisfaction. So even though these are like short-term measures, right? they measure like ASML's performance over one year according to all these uh, four or five areas, but these are short-term uh, measures that will eventually lead to the long-term health of the company. So I think from that perspective, even though it's a short-term incentive for Wenning, I think it's uh, also very well structured. Because if you do all of these things well, it will lead to the long-term growth and long-term health of ASML. Uh, in terms of its long-term incentive, it's uh, determined by ASML's total uh, long-term shareholder return. Uh, and also determined by ASML's uh, long-term return on invested capital and long-term progress along its technology roadmap and also its long-term progress along uh, ESG-related um, matters. So ESG would be like the environmental, social, and corporate governance areas. So again, all of these things are fine to be important to an investor's long-term return with ASML. So I think like, you know, the, when I look at the, the types of matrix that ASML needs to meet for in, in both the short run and long run in order for Wenning to earn his short-term and long-term incentives, I think they're all very well aligned. Um, they, they, rather, they, they align Wenning's interests uh, very well with the interests of ASML's uh, shareholders over the long run. So, yeah, so I like that kind of compensation structure. Like the money that's involved is very reasonable. And at the same time, the, the KPIs that ASML needs to meet um, I think they are also very well thought out. Yeah. So um, yeah, when I look at the way that Wenning is compensated, I think um, um, you know I, I, I think that this is a management team that has um, that that likely has a lot of uh, integrity in them. 
And, um, and another area about integrity that I look at would be insider ownership. So in this case, this is where ASML is a little bit disappointing. I think if you look at uh, the top four or five of uh, ASML's um, key leaders and you combine their total ownership stake in the company, um, I have numbers current as of uh, end of 2020, right? And so if you look at uh, ASML's uh, uh, share price, um, so I, my, my data on the share price is, um, is in, uh, as of early May, which is like about 630 um, US dollars. At the 630 US dollar share price, the total stake of uh, ASML's management team works out to only about 64 million US dollars. So, I mean, of course, that is still a significant sum of money, but that's also divided by like four or five people. And so individually, it's not, they, they don't have very meaningful ownership stakes in ASML, I think. Um, so that's a little bit disappointing. But when I look at uh, the compensation structure, I think, I think it's very well thought out. So on balance, I, I think that, you know, um, it's very likely that this is a management team with very strong um, moral fiber. Okay, that's good. I do agree that compensation is extremely important. It's very indicative of like, what are the incentive structures for the management? How are they going to push the company going forward? Um, but there's one particular question that was bugging me when I was looking at the stats, right? Was that these guys are like 65 or like 64 years old and they are in a very sophisticated space. It's not like I can pluck another person to come in and take over. You know, like you pointed out, right? These guys probably... They, they sat through the whole process of development the first, for the first 15, 16 years of this company before even taking to market. And they're very young only in, in the go-to-market strategy. Only a few years in, they're only building out their business early days. Um, most of it was on research. What is the kind of legacy planning going forward? You know, because I know that as an investor, probably for you, and um, very long-term, right? 10, 20, 30 years, you know, in that sense. So then... You know, this is an important question mark, right? Like, how is this company going to keep going with its leadership in a very sophisticated space? No, absolutely. Um, and I think it's... Uh, so this is one of the risks that I've identified with ASML as well. Um, and that, you know, if there's a change of management team, that is a risk. And that's something that um, my co-founder and I uh, in the investment fund, you know, that's something that we uh, are keeping our eyes on. That say, you know, we, we don't really know how long Wenling and Vandenbrink will stay on in their roles. Um, I mean, there are corporate leaders who continue working to their 70s yes, or 80s. Yes. And, you know, I, I genuinely wish uh, the best of health to Wenning and Vandenbrink. Not just because, you know, <laughs> if they are healthy, they can continue leading the company. But, you know, just for the sake of being happy to see people being mm-hmm. healthy. <laughs> right. So, so I genuinely wish them the best of health. Um, yeah, and, and no idea how long they'll stay on. Um, so that's definitely a risk in terms of their succession. Leadership succession, um, but uh, I'm also in a way uh, um, kind of uh, slightly consoled by the fact that one of um, uh, ASML's key leaders, his name is uh, it's a French name, so I, I just I just butchering butcher his butcher name. <laughs> Christophe Foucault. Uh, Foucault. Foucault. I, I, if Foucault. if yeah, yeah, Foucault, it's a okay. philosopher name. Yeah, of I, I, yeah yes, Foucault. Continue, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he's the executive vice president of ASML's entire uh, extreme ultraviolet lithography program. He's only 48 years old. <laughs> I like so, how we're talking about, you know, this, uh, this guy's still young, still can go, still can carry on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, that, I think important, it's important, important to look at, yes. like, you know, the, the age of exactly, the leaders exactly. to, you know, to give you a sense of how much potential... Definitely, definitely. Because, because, you know, I mean, you just look at Microsoft, he passed, Bill Gates passed down such an established business also shake like mad for many years, right? So for these guys, they are like sophisticated, relatively small business and very old founder. I think it's, a, it's something that we have to talk about, yes. 
uh, technically they're not they're, they're not the founders they are like the professional managers mm, of okay, this okay you know? okay yeah they're yeah, the techie just, guys yeah, just to okay. just to clarify Christophe mm. Fuqua, he's uh, yeah, so he's forty eight, and he has been a long time employee of ASML as well. He joined in two thousand and eight, so thirteen years in the company. So I think probably very well steeped into the culture of ASML, um, and yeah, so so you know the fact that you have uh, somebody leading the extreme ultraviolet lithography program that is relatively young, and that has been in the company for many years, uh, that gives me some source of comfort mm. as well. Yeah, and then the chief financial officer of the company. And I think it's interesting to note because uh, Wenning, the current CEO, was also the CFO when he when he took over the company. So the current chief financial officer of uh, ASML is Roger Desson. He's uh, currently fifty six. Yeah, and uh, so relatively young, and uh, joined ASML about three years ago. Yeah, so not not a very long tenure, but I think sufficiently long enough. Again, you know, to be able to be very familiar with the culture at ASML and so on. So yeah, I think um, I have not come across any explicit discussion from ASML's management team on like succession planning. But I look at the leadership bench, I can kind of see perhaps this is how the succession planning could go about. Yeah. Okay, it's pretty cool and a lot of technical people. And I, I think uh, I also want to just kind of clarify for our listeners, right? they don't just do this technology, it's just that this particular technology is their flagship and this is what they're pushing at this moment in time. And it is fast becoming their core business right but every other thing that they do is also in this space it's just that this platform is their latest you know innovation and it's it's not it's not just like a faster of something it's like a whole new thing it's not a horse not a faster horse it's a whole new car something the same idea right yes exactly exactly so asml besides making extreme ultraviolet lithography machines also also manufactures deep ultraviolet lithography machines but I think there's a very good analogy. Uh, so deep ultraviolet lithography machines are the current workhorses of the semiconductor industry. But I think the extreme ultraviolet lithography machine is not a faster horse, but it's a car. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a really good analogy that you brought Great, up. great. Yeah. Cool stuff. Yeah, so I think that's uh, something for everybody to know, right? So I think you shared a lot of good stuff, you know, from the different angles. We even talked about potential legacy planning of this company, right? So what are some of these um, headwinds and tailwinds um, or things that you have not talked about that you think that we should be very aware of when uh, going to this company? Sure. So I think yeah, you are probably uh, referring to like the risks mm. that are involved with uh, ASML, right? Um, I think there are a few risks and some of these I've mentioned before. Uh, so one would be like the leadership transition. So ASML's leaders are, the key leaders, uh, at least two of them are, are of a uh, relatively mm. advanced Oleo, state, Oleo, so there's something to watch. There's also a uh, customer concentration. So like as I, as I mentioned, TSM, TSMC, Intel, and Samsung are key customers of ASML, and, and it, uh, the company depends on, on its key customers for a very significant amount of its revenue. And there's also a heavy reliance on Carl Zeiss, which is one of its key suppliers. And, and uh, I think it's also worth mentioning that uh, Carl Zeiss is, I think, the only producer of some of these optical equipment that uh, that ASML uses. Crazy, it's all the very, very important. It's all very specific. Guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct. And then there's uh, geopolitics. You know, the fact that um, uh, TSMC is in Taiwan and accounts for a big portion of uh, ASML's revenue. So ASML, I mean, has I don't think has ever officially said that. You know, uh, TSMC uh, accounts for big chunk of my revenues but if you look at the geographical dispersion of ASML's revenue you notice that Taiwan accounts for <laughs> different chunks and TSMC is based in Taiwan so you can make that logical yes, inference yes. from there um, yeah so 
you know, if there are ever any, I think, major conflicts between, um, between Taiwan and China, uh, then uh, ASML could get hurt. Yeah. And then, uh, okay, of course, there's another one, which is like the cyclicality in the semiconductor industry. So, you know, semiconductor revenues have historically been cyclical. There is a strong argument to be made today that, that cyclicality has been dampened because of like, you know, the, just the, the sheer commonality of um, uh, digital devices in, in people's lives today. Like di digitalization is becoming more and more prevalent. And there's an argument to be made that cyclicality has been dampened, but you know, you can never be too sure, right? And uh, you know, there, there's a lot of, uh, um, there are a lot of uh, companies and countries, you know, today saying that, you know, I want to invest very heavily in chip making. Uh, but will that uh, investment eventually come to pass? Will it lead to a situation of like massive um, oversupply of chips? So that's something to, to, to keep an eye on. Um, and then I think there's one very interesting one, uh, which is like the potential obsolescence of lithography systems, right? So right now there are companies today that are trying to develop quantum computers. So IBM is one of those. And Google, which is uh, the uh, under um, Alphabet, which is a company that also owns in the fund for disclosure purposes, um, they like just two of the bigger companies that I know of. They are in the process of developing quantum computers. They are not viable for like, everyday usage yet, but uh, these computers have been shown to be able to perform um, some form of computing, right? And according to certain very strict definitions, the the quantum computers that have been uh, manufactured by Google have been shown to be significantly better than traditional computers that are based on silicon chips, or, or rather the supercomputers you know that that we are familiar with. So supercomputers will be like computers that are like just a lot better than the the regular ones that we are using today, uh, but that are basically built with very similar architecture. But qu quantum computers though can have a very different form of architecture. Yes. So the most basic unit in a traditional computer would be like the integrated circuits, right? The silicon chips. So these are what gives the computer the ability to perform computing. Whereas in, in quantum computers, the chips or rather um, still be, um, can be manufactured in a very, very... Even though if you can call that, that chips not, anymore, it's like very, very different altogether. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't really know the technical mm -hmm. terms. So I'm yeah, just yeah, using yeah. chips as like a, like a, like a kind of a catch-all. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, so so they can be manufactured in ways that just do not involve silicon chips yes. at all, right? And if that's the case, and if quantum computing catches on and becomes a mainstream new form of um, computers that people are using, then the entire lithography uh, process may become obsolete in the mm. future. And if so, then that could be an existential threat to ASML. Uh, but that is a, a risk with heavy ramifications but very low probability because as of today, quantum computers are still in their infancy and there's no consensus yet on what's the best way to build quantum computing chips. And there's also, I've also seen um, uh, research that shows that you, know, uh, you can actually build quantum computing chips with the uh, traditional silicon-based uh, um, chips. So um, there's hope yet that you know, lithography may not be obsolete even if quantum computing takes off. Um, but, you know, that's something, that's a development that I think is important to watch. Yeah, for sure. Right, and I think the last uh, risk to look at with ASML would be uh, the valuation. So the company has a high um, valuation. If you look at, say, price-to-earnings or price-to-free cash flow ratio, um, I don't have the latest numbers, but I would 
uh, believe it's probably in the region of like 60 to 70 thereabouts. So, so that's a high valuation. And of course, when you invest in a company with a high valuation, that's always a risk because if the company is unable to grow, then the share price could collapse um, massively. Yeah, so so that's, an, that's, a, that's an important risk I think that investors should note you know, if they are looking at ASML. Yeah, great. Definitely, uh, valuation is definitely a big headache. Essentially, if moving away from lithography is like a whole technological seismic shift, right? Which has happened before. You know, it's not, it's not impossible, right? But exactly like what you pointed out, what is the probability, right? So this is a catastrophic situation, a relatively low probability. And that is for everybody to continue to learn and kind of find out more um, in this space. But definitely, I think ASML has, uh, they are definitely a big player in this, in this space. But like, like we've talked about, you know, this whole time, the complexity of the situation and what they are as a company. It's uh, pretty interesting. So yes, thanks for coming on. Yeah, is there any last things you want to add before we, we call this a day? I just want to say uh, thank you for anybody that's listening in. And yeah, thanks again, Reggie, for, for having me. Had a thank lot of fun. you. Good stuff. Thank you. Thanks, Satsing. See you guys. Take care. Bye. Woo! Hey Coconuts, so I hope you learned something useful today and definitely recognize that investing is a personal decision. We're not giving you any recommendations here, but I'm always happy to geek out with you about different interesting companies and trends for the future. This series has a lot more depth and terms, so if you have any questions for us, do join our community telegram group or DM us on our socials. Link is in the description. If you love us and want to help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. And to stay tuned with what is happening in the markets and in the TFC network, do sign up for our weekly newsletter at thefinancialcoconut.com. With that, I hope you have a great day ahead and may you improve to become a confident, insightful and disciplined investor, ultimately creating the life you love while managing your finances well. See ya next week.